We're going to jump right in to the message today. It is, uh, what, January 3rd, 2016. Our message today is called The Biggest Loser. And uh, can we say that this ball of dirt is hurling around the sun at a frightening pace? Those of you that have been alive just a little while, 2016 was once a date that probably would have finished your mortgage payments or something. It seemed so far in the future that it would never happen. And it is upon us. I can't help but acknowledge in 2016 a profound, amazing event happening in the Stevens home. The Fowlers are with child, and so are the young Stevens couple. This will be the year of Titus Magnus Stevens. And granddad, this is the year you become great granddad. What a thing to see four generations of righteous. There was a time when it was difficult to see one generation of righteous in the Stevens family. But it is growing. Amen. The leaven is working through the whole loaf. Are you all excited to be in the house of God? Psalm 133 speaks about the oil that drips off of Aaron's beard. And I don't have any oil this morning, but praise and worship did leave me sweaty. So, uh, man, what a good praise and worship we have. Turn with me to Acts 14. We're going to begin in the 21st verse. I shared this at the New Year's Eve bonfire. I would like to give a plug for the bonfire at the end of this year. Uh, Plan on being there. Plan on having a prophecy for every person there. Plan on writing a poem, a song, or sharing an amazing testimony. In the name of Jesus Christ, our 23rd bonfire that we do will be our best yet. The 22nd was good, but every month I'm going to remind you what happens in December. For me, this coming one will be the 23rd bonfire. You're going to hear that a lot, not because I'm proud of 23 But I figure if we've been doing it 23 years, it ought not surprise any of you in this next December. You all ought to be ready with a word, right? You ought to be ready with a song. Justin Treister picked up a Don Potter classic, It's Time to Get Right with God. And it stirred my soul to repentance. Thank you, Justin. What an amazing, amazing... This is going to be a good year. Are you in Acts 14? In Acts 14, starting in verse 21... They preached the good news. Somebody say good news. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Say, I'm winning disciples. Oh, my goodness. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples. Say, strengthening. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed leaders. Say, appointed elders. elders. Church, this year, our ministry is going to be involved in many things. But all of them are going to relate to four things. The first is we are going to preach the good news of the kingdom. We are not going to preach an Americanized version. We are not going to preach a version that somebody has deemed okay or palatable. We are going to preach the news that you can repent the kingdom of God is breaking in. A new order of doing things. An amazing, incredible, supernatural existence on earth. That is our message. Secondly, 
We are going to win disciples, not decisions. I am not interested in raised pinkies, not interested in heartfelt tears. We are interested in the actual process of discipleship. When you leave your father's fishing boats to follow the master, you are a disciple. When you leave something to join something, you are a disciple. Simply having a moment of stricken conscience and deciding to allow Jesus to be called your master is not at all Christianity. It is when you demonstrate that he is your master through walking it out. We will win disciples this year. Third, the disciples that are in this church, those who are, and not just in this church, around the world, those who have joined in the struggle of the kingdom of God breaking in, we are going to strengthen them. We're going to strengthen them at all costs. We're going to strengthen them even if it winkens us. We will put real disciples on better footing this year. Amen. The fourth one, and maybe the most exciting, from our number this year, more leaders will arise. Amen. To that tune, I want to show you something. Could we put that chart on the screen for you? From January 15th to April 15th, we're going to have discipleship helps taught again. Some of you remember this. There were 46 lessons or 47 lessons broken up into three sections. We taught it in past years on Sunday evening, and it was always a pastor or an elder that taught it. We're in a place this year where we have many people who can teach these things. This is the January through April list. On Friday night from 7 to 9, these classes will be taught. We recognize that there are home meetings on these nights sometimes. There's youth on these nights. Not everybody will attend these classes. But if you want to go further in discipleship and you have not yet attended these classes, they're for you. They're being taught for you. We're going to meet with the teachers before they teach. We're going to attend some of the classes while they teach. We will also meet with the teachers after they teach because this year we will turn out competent leaders in every area. And the men that are on here have already been through the 47 lessons. The men who are on here have been through Acts Advanced Combat Training. I'm going to write Advanced Combat Training, the second chapter, this year. We're going to push in every area to show ourselves competent in the Word, to display in our actions what God has taught us in our hearts in spirit. I want to encourage you beginning January 15th, you ought to attend these. If you've already attended them, you might refresh on them. But certainly, if you have not been through these classes and you want to be a disciple, these are a good step. They are not the discipleship process, but what they are is the beginning of a conversation, the beginning of a transformation that will help you become discipled. When we move to the second section of the teaching. It will be required that you have completed the first or you cannot go through the second. It's not our goal to put restrictions, but these lessons do very much build on each other. The kingdom requires a foundation and that foundation you have to build carefully upon. Can y'all say amen? amen? All right. I would like to read with you Luke 16, starting in verse 15. Say there when you were there. Are y'all excited in the house of God today? I got blessed during worship. You could sit in your seat and pray. That is certainly something that the Lord may lead you to do or you may choose to do. But there is something special 
about dancing before your brothers, jogging before your brothers, getting out of your comfort zone and making yourself just a little bit undignified before your brothers. I believe it moves the heart of God when we put feet to our faith. And I am proud to be among a group that puts feet to their faith. The Browns have made it back from their travels to see their grandchildren in the other one association churches. I want to say greetings and we're glad to have you back. Those of you that helped build a house in Mexico this year, uh, all those thousands of nails, all those pieces of wood, Charlie placed and designed each one on paper thoughtfully before we ever arrived there. You might tell him thank you for that at some point. He planned that project so well that it was down to the last board correct. And those of you that were on the pitch of that roof, Thank the Browns very much for getting you closer to the Lord and establishing your prayer life. There is a family in Mexico that has a house now. If you thought it was fun to tithe, if you thought it was fun to give special blessings, if at some point in your life the Lord required of you to give away your favorite pocket knife, oh my goodness, wait till you start giving away houses. It's even more fun. And a car is coming this next month. Are y'all in Luke 16? I'd like to read to you the 15th verse. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. That is an incredibly powerful statement. It ought to be the kind that you stop doing whatever else you're doing and you take sober assessment of your life. The things that you do, do you do them for the glory of your king or do you do them for the respect of your peers? The things that you do, are they admirable before the Lord or are they detestable to Him? The most religious people on the planet Got this wrong. Those who had the word memorized. Those who from birth were taught the covenants of God. This is before we had Facebook. This is before we had on-demand pornography. This is before we had YouTube. This is before you were driving down the road and the radio was competing for your attention. Before you were driving down the road and billboards were competing for your attention. Before the latest movie advertisements were jingling in your ears. This was true then. How much more so do you think we might struggle with it today? It turns out that we have an infomercial for you this morning. This infomercial will help shed some light on what I'm speaking about. Are you a Christian girl that loves taking photos of her devotions? Do you spend hours framing the perfect picture without the payoff of people noticing how spiritual you are on the internet? Introducing Christian Girl Instagram, 101 tips and tricks to get more likes on your devotional photos. Hi, I'm John Christ with Christian Girl Instagram. Do you struggle to get likes on those devotional Instagram photos? Hashtag the struggle is real. From the best-selling author of Shameless Workout Selfies comes Christian Girl Instagram. I would always get totes stressed out trying to decide which Bible verse to show. 
<laughs> not anymore. Okay, you're always going to want to stay away from common verses like Jeremiah 29 11 or John 3 16. No matter what verse you choose, you always want to make sure you highlight multiple verses with multiple colors. Because after all, what's the point of having devotions if no one knows about it? I used to spend five minutes reading the Bible, then like 30 minutes trying to figure out a hashtag. Then I found Christian Girl Instagram. My book includes over a thousand hashtag suggestions like Coffee with Colossians, Bliss, Serenity, Much Needed, and of course, hashtag blessed. Buy Christian Girl Instagram today and we'll include our 31-piece package of options to put in the background of your photo. Things like a candle, a Precious Moments doll, a subscription to Relevant Magazine, kale chips, and of course, a coffee cup with a Bible verse on it. Thanks to inspiration from Christian Girl Instagram, I took down my Marilyn Monroe poster and replaced it with footprints in the sand. So clear off what's really on your desk and replace it with new products from Christian Girl Instagram. Christian Girl Instagram now includes bonus tips like if you're going to include your hand in the photo, always wear a purity ring. And if you're going to include additional reading material in the background of your photo, always avoid extremes. We don't want people to think you're too prosperity driven by maybe having some Joel Osteen, yet we don't want people to worry about your theology by having some Rob Bell or Mark Driscoll, okay? You want to stay right in the middle, maybe some Joyce Meyer, some Beth Moore would be perfect. And remember, anything leather bound is really going to pop with that Valencia Instagram filter. Christian Girl Instagram is great. My devotions are now constantly being interrupted by people liking my post. Buy now and I'll also include my additional book, Announcing Your Social Media Fast. Tips and tricks for effectively telling people you're fasting while ignoring all of Jesus' teachings about telling people you're fasting. Christian Girl Instagram can be yours today. This book and so much more available to you all for the cost of less than a pair of yoga pants. I don't always do devotions, but when I do, I Instagram it. We're so confident in our product that if you're not totally satisfied with Christian Girl Instagram, We'll send you this free autographed Tim Tebow poster. Needless to say, that was a joke. And I couldn't help but notice during the first part of the video, many of you were awful quiet. You might want to delete your Facebook account before the end of the service and everyone checks it to see your latest devotional post. Obviously, somebody was picking fun at a problem in our society. Now, I'm not here to be the social media police. I've spent years doing it, and it doesn't work. I really am here to say that it is time that we examine even the thoughts or motives behind our thoughts. I want to serve the Lord in purity. I want to serve the Lord for the excellency of His name and not for the benefit of mine. And because it's the first Sunday of the year, in pulpits across America, in some cleverly packaged way, people will be told how to be even more successful this year. This is the year I would like to be known as the very biggest loser. Could you turn with me to Philippians 3? Say there when you were there. Come on, Squirrel Team 6 beat you there. Where are the rest of you? Before we read Philippians, I don't know whether or not you're a Republican or a Democrat, 
I don't know whether you're for gun control or against gun control. And if you disagree with me about all of those things, you have the right to be wrong if you choose to. But the truly great divide in the technological world is Windows versus Mac. It's worth saying that Windows by far has been more expensive. And it didn't escape my notice that they titled it Windows. See, if I crawled up outside of your window and peered into the window of your house, there's a name for that. It's a voyeur. That's not something that typically would be a flattering term. Maybe a long time ago, people called that a peeping Tom. If you intentionally put your behaviors in front of the window for everyone else to see, there would be a name for that. It would be an exhibitionist. It didn't escape my notice that this little computer screen, or these days a phone screen that we call a window, is often a window that you are being an exhibitionist to the rest of the world about things that are none of their business. And there are times you are peering through the window of somebody's family life that you have no business seeing. All in the name of ministry. Then what we post... This is such an interesting thing, and I promise it's not the anti-Facebook message, unless that's what you hear. And then for you, it's the anti-Facebook message. (laughs) Have you noticed that they go in two extremes? The post either presents the life that they want you to see that they have, i.e. the perfectly formed devotional, or the family picture at the beach, or whatever it might be, or... They're posting somebody's dirty laundry that nobody should see. But very seldom is reality TV or reality social media actually reality. Have you noticed that Christians that fail in every area of their life all of the time look like absolute superstars? I mean, they rival the Apostle Paul on Facebook. How you want to be presented to the world says something about where we're at with Christ in our lives. I want to read to you from Philippians and have you read along with me and see what strikes your heart as noteworthy or interesting. Let us begin in verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. (laughs) But wait, there's more. Sounds like a Ron Popeil commercial. I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That's kind of bragging, isn't it? You can answer. It's the Apostle Paul. It's not Jesus Christ. He said this. He put it in a letter. And if that's all you heard, if that's the window into his life, if that's his Facebook post, that's all you would know. And you might even consider him a braggart. But that's not all there is. The rest of the letter is here. 
I want to explain to you quickly and put into historical context for you what he's actually doing. Count them. There are seven attributes that he mentions. Does that surprise you? He didn't choose five. He didn't choose nine. There are seven attributes. First one, on the eighth day, he was circumcised. Leviticus 12.3 commands this. This means he was born into obedience. This means that even his parents were obedient before he was old enough to be obedient. That speaks of a certain kind of heritage, doesn't it? Secondly, of the people of Israel, he's not a convert to Judaism. He didn't buy his way in. He didn't have a marriage that brought him in. He was not a Gentile who converted. He was born to the people of Israel. This speaks of a certain kind of privilege. Third, of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, at this time in Israel, many Jews could not name their ancestry because the Assyrian Empire had come in and conquered the northern ten tribes and dispersed them and then resettled the land. The Samaritans didn't know which tribe they were from because many of the Jews living in Jerusalem had lived under Babylonian occupation, had been through the Greek Empire and now living under the Romans. They weren't always sure. They just knew that they were Jewish. But this man knew his ancestry with certainty. Can we say pedigree? Hebrew of Hebrews. This is a misleading idea. Say Hebrew of Hebrews. That sounds very redundant. He's already said he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's already said he's of the people of Israel. He already said that he was circumcised on the eighth day. This means in its idiom, I am a Hebrew-speaking son of Hebrew-speaking parents. Because at a time, at this time in history, many Jews had begun speaking Greek because 85% of the Jewry in the world was in the diaspora and only 15% was in Israel. Some of the Israelites had even begun speaking other dialects like Aramaic. But Paul makes the point, my parents spoke Hebrew and I speak Hebrew. Fifth, a Pharisee. In Acts 26 and verse 5, you don't have to turn there, make a note. You can put it on the screen if you want. In Acts 26, 5, he says that this was the strictest part or sect of the religion. He lived as a Pharisee. In other words, among all Jews, there is a group that is the strictest, and I was one of those. That speaks of position, doesn't it? In Acts 22, in verse 3, not just a Pharisee, not just a member of the strictest sect, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most regarded um, Pharisees or leaders of the time. I mean, a teacher of teachers. In Galatians 1, in verse 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my peers, because I was so zealous. Is Paul describing a life of position, a life of pedigree, a life of privilege, obedient from birth? He is. How about his zeal, the sixth attribute? He said, as far as zeal, I went so far as to act on my beliefs. I went so far as to persecute what is now the messianic community? I put people in jail. I was so zealous. Are you more zealous than me? How about the seventh attribute? 
Legalistic righteousness, he says he was faultless. If it came to purity from a ceremonial sense, if it came to the letter of the law, no one could accuse him of having been impure or unclean. So let's recap some of that. I've been obedient since birth. Even my parents were obedient. I've been privileged in the status that I was born into. I have a pedigree that goes back to the founding of the nation. I speak the original language from the time of my birth because my parents spoke it. I was a member of the strictest sect of our religion and a student of the best teacher in our religion and I advanced beyond all of my peers. My zeal showed up in my action to the extent that it defined my life. As far as legalistic righteousness, no one could find fault in me. Can we say that Paul's Facebook status is pretty good? Isn't that an interesting thing? Do you get the impression that these seven things could have hung over his desk in the pastor's office? Or maybe be accompanied on the back of his best-selling book, The Letter to the Galatians, with Paul in a three-piece suit and leather-bound books in the library behind him and these seven things there as why you should buy his book. Listen to how the Apostle Paul follows up. By the way, can you say if he could pick seven, he could have picked 14? I mean, I can think of many here personally known to the high priest. I mean, I, I could think of many here that uh, he could have listed and he did not list. Let's finish how he describes this. But whatever was to my prophet, what was to his prophet? Those seven status symbols. I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Men like C.T. Studd who set out for Africa to change the heart of a continent when they were asked what the best preparation for becoming a missionary was. His response was a lost reputation. Christianity today is working with all of its heart to maintain its reputation and follow Christ. But the men that this book is founded on their writings as inspired by the Holy Ghost, they all lost their reputations for Christ. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Say everything. everything. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whose sake I have... For whose sake I have... When I was just an 18-year-old punk... Still called of God, but a punk. I was describing a great sacrifice in my life. I was making about $4.25 an hour doing the hardest work that human beings can do. And I saw a SOG multi-tool. If you don't know what that is, this was kind of the pre-Leatherman days, before multi-tools were popular or cheap. And 
because I was bringing home about $180 a week. And the multi-tool was about $120. This represented a pretty large sacrifice at that point in my life. I had never really saved for anything except to take Jennifer out on a date at that point. And that was easy because I had no responsibilities. I was still in high school. I'd save money all month and we'd go to Ruth Chris once, right? King for a day, a pauper every day thereafter, every month. It was the first thing that I disciplined myself to experience loss for. I was willing to not eat a special meal. We were eating Janet Lee products all of the time then. That was the Kroger version of, you know, you could have this or maybe this, or some of you have heard of this, or there's this really crappy stuff no one ever buys. That's, That's what we were buying. And I worked and I saved the money for that knife. And I had it three days, and on the third day, the Lord spoke to me and told me to give it to someone that I did not think would appreciate it. I wanted to give away my truck. It was a piece of junk. I would have given away anything else that I had, and that is not what he wanted. Paul was able to say, for whose sake I have lost all things. There was nothing in Paul's life that controlled him. You know, when you think of a possession, Pastor Sutherland was rapping with me this morning, and he said, you know, the real question is, do you possess it or does it possess you? And the reality is, that knife possessed my affection. That knife had become for me something because I worked for it and sacrificed for it that I loved. And... While everything that I owned belonged to the Lord, and I could have had a bumper sticker on my car that said so, when it came time to give it to someone or let someone use it, all of a sudden I found out that what I thought I owned owned a portion of me. And I realized that it had to die. I know, I should have (laughs) preached this before Christmas, right? Then none of you would be... No, you would. So I'm talking to an elder about it at the time. And he says, you know, Eric, I was born again in the 60s and I had every Beatles album. I'm like, who wants that, man, you know? And he said, you don't understand. I had first edition, mint condition, Beatles albums. And when I got born again, the Lord dealt with me to give them all away. Now, he was joking and telling the truth about himself, and I didn't realize how important this was until these last decades. He said, I got rid of all of them, and I have spent the next 25 years trying to reacquire them. And I realized something. It's easy to give our life to the Lord in a moment. It is easy to promise it. And we may even go the whole nine yards and get disowned by our parents and thrown out of family gatherings. But then little by little, we grab bits of prestige back for ourselves. We grab little bits back for ourselves. We make sure that our Facebook window looks a certain way so that we are respectable in the eyes of men. But often what is respectable in the eyes of men is deplorable to God. And what men hate... The Lord loves. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider 
loss. This word for loss is zemia. It's Strong's number 2209. It doesn't just mean like I forgot where it's at. It means loss as in profit and loss. It's a negative. I now consider it actually the word is usually translated destruction, like loss of life. Whatever was to my benefit is now injurious to me. He wanted to be known only in the light of his relationship with the Lord. Now, as you move forward with this concept, Paul uses some language that's actually hard to understand if you speak Greek. He says uh, in verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing Greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We get that. When compared to Jesus, everything else is, is a loss, right? Nothing is worth him. You get that. But listen to this. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him. This word rubbish does not at all mean like ordinary garbage. In fact, if you want to have a really good time, like scratching your head and wondering about scriptural eccentricities, if you will, then you might look this one up sometime because this particular Strong's number is 4657. And let's just say that you owned, I don't know, um, a word study of the New Testament or an evangelical dictionary of theological terms. This term is scuvalon. And in all Greek writings prior to the third century, it was an expletive. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's a bad word. And this is because it referred to after someone has eaten food and digested the food and the food has now left their body. You got me? Um, now, I get that at different times in society we use different words for impact, for, for different meanings. Uh, there was a message last year about semantic drift. What struck me is that Paul is not saying that it's nothing. He's not saying that it's garbage. He's literally describing it in the strongest negative term that is available to him in the Greek language and such a strong term that some people would go, did he say that? And because it's the Apostle Paul, we go, oh, well, it's okay. It's Bible. It's the Apostle Paul. But if your kid said it, you might whip him, okay? This is like when you're in another country and they refer to, I mean, the church behind us had a plumbing problem and their description of it would, you know, not usually be said from a pulpit, but it was as pure as could possibly be from their perspective. And I said, we don't say that word. He said, what do you call it? You know, and I gave him a few alternatives and he told me they were vulgar. So... He prefers his stacked high in transit. Um, and what I'm getting at here is that the Apostle Paul felt very strongly about what he was saying. And he expressed it in the strongest possible terms. When it comes to prestige, when it comes to things that would cause me to be, be viewed favorably, I couldn't view them as zemia, loss, destruction, or when I compare it to Christ, the truth is it's a big steaming pile of hay. 
right? That's kind of what he is saying. Would that shock you if you were listening to the Apostle Paul and that's how you took it? Of course it would. And it was meant to. So let me ask you, how shocked do you think the biblical writer would be to go through a year of our Facebook post? How do you think the biblical writer would view a license plate that says, you know, I tithe? Or uh, the assertion that you are blessed because of all of your righteousness. How do you think he would view such things? Because he considered them damaging, a loss, maybe even digested materials. He viewed it negatively. It's awful quiet in here. Could you turn with me to Genesis 31? I'm going to take you from the law to the prophets to the writings back to the Brit Hadashah because that's just the way I do it. In Genesis 31, in the law of God, we find a revelation of the heart. Imagine that, that the law might reveal where someone's heart is. For Christ's sake, would you lose the view that You're obedient. For Christ's sake, would you lose the idea that you're privileged? For Christ's sake, would you throw away your pedigree? For Christ's sake, would you throw away your accomplishments? For Christ's sake, would you allow people to view you as a drunkard? Would you allow people to view you as a friend of whores? For Christ's sake, would you allow people to misinterpret your zeal? For Christ's sake, Would you throw away legalistic righteousness? Because Paul considered all of it garbage, if you prefer that word. Or perhaps I could just say scuvalung, and it will work just fine. In the law of God, we see a certain heart revealed. Pick up with me in 31, Genesis 31, we're going to be in verse 38. Say there when you're there. I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. Say, bore the loss. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for 20 years. I was in your household. I worked for you for 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands and last night he rebuked you. When you think of Jacob and you think of Laban, you could summarize these two men's lives. Laban represents a spirit that says, pay me up front. You want my daughter? You have to work for me for seven years first. You want to share in my business? You have to take care of my flocks first. Laban is a me first, I get mine kind of spirit. Contrast that with Jacob. Jacob sees the beautiful daughter, Rachel, and he is willing to sacrifice and work for her. 
he sacrifices up front to be benefited later. Much of the world could still be divided into a Laban spirit or a Jacob spirit. A Laban spirit says, if there's nothing in it for me now, I'm not doing it. But a Jacob spirit says, I am willing to suffer loss now for gain later. The Christian spirit is defined by the patriarch Jacob, not by the miser Laban. And yet what you hear so often out of Christianity is serve God so that you are blessed now. And you'll also be blessed later. The Lord loves you just the way you are. Good, I love me too, just the way that I am. And he'll love you for eternity. Good, I plan on loving me forever too. Laban versus Jacob in the heart of the law is uh, one of those stories that in just thinking of the two men's names, one is instant gratification and the other's life is defined by struggle that though he was being made into something. In the sacrificing, in the experiencing the loss himself, something was being formed inside of him. Laban comes on the scene, um, a shrewd person, and when he leaves, he's a shrewd person. But Jacob comes on the scene one kind of man, and he leaves a totally different kind of man. So let me ask you in your Christian walk, do you have a, a pay-me-now spirit? Or do you have a sacrifice now and I will be rewarded later, spirit? Is that worth considering? Is Jesus Christ and his goals worth suffering for? Is the kingdom of God worth being disadvantaged for today so that you might live with him in his glory forever? See, I believe that it is. Beware of a Laban spirit that is trying to seduce you into a no suffering, instant gratification, your best now. Turn with me to 1 Kings. Let's go to the prophets. Tell me, church, am I preaching something relevant? In 1 Kings, starting in chapter 17... Looking at verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. If there was ever a passage that seems a little bit inartfully worded in the NIV, listen to this next phrase carefully. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Don't be afraid. Go home, eat it, and die. (laughs) Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me and from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. You know, I've heard this preached so many ways and I've preached it. I don't know how many ways. Usually it's something like this though. And mind you from a pure heart. At least as pure as I knew my heart to be. The truth is my heart is pretty wicked a lot of the time. It's shocking sometimes. Say something along these lines. Look, she had the sentence of death in her heart, but the Lord appealed to her. He sent his prophet to her and that was special. And she learned to put the Lord's needs before her own and then he provided for her all the days of her life. That's not a bad message, is it? I mean, it's definitely true. You know what struck me this morning? She's going to die anyway. She's sitting there and a prophet has walked up and she's going to die. She says she's going to die. You know, if you believe that you are already dead, if you believe that you have already lost all things, if you believe that you're already crucified in Christ, then we have two choices before us always. You can trust the Lord and truly live or you can protect your own life and truly die. If she decides to take the little bit of food she has and guard it because God knows she needs it, she dies, which is exactly what she was expecting. If she chooses to trust the Lord in her situation, surrounded by death, she has a shot at truly living. If you've ever read Paul's letter to Timothy in the sixth chapter, this is what he says, command those who are rich to be rich in good deeds that they might take hold of life that is really... Life. I'm not trying to get in your pocketbooks. What I'm trying to tell you is that the Christian life is defined by what we're willing to lose because we trust Him. He said, what is more? I consider everything a loss. Come on, say everything. Everything. I consider everything a loss. If your Christian life was defined by what you had lost for the kingdom instead of what you had gained because of the kingdom, what would your pedigree look like? See, we live in a time when Christianity's success is what is selling it to the masses. If you love the Lord, He will do this for you and this for you, and you can be the picture of health, wealth, and success like me and the Barbie doll I'm married to in our airbrush posters appealing to you in a spiritual manner. Kind of like a Christian Instagram. Where do you think Christians thought it was okay to do stupid things like that? Have you ever seen the way that pastors advertise their churches? Very rarely do you see a fat pastor on a billboard. Like, I could take up the whole thing. Even when I say, the biggest loser. I know what you thought. Eric's been working his whole life to get on that program. Right? Listen, we are advertising the image of success and calling it success when we accumulate things. But while we're talking about that, before we get to our writing scripture, let's suppose that Eric was on the program called The Biggest Loser. So I'm how many ever hundred pounds? And what's the goal? For me to lose 
50% of my body weight, right? Am I wrong or is that about how the program works? I haven't had cable in a really long time. Well, if I could lose 50% of my body weight, doesn't that speak to something? The gross mismanagement of accumulation in my life? Doesn't it speak to something? Now, I'm not here talking to you about physical exercise. I mean, that profits a little. I'm here talking to you about godliness. I know it's January early on, so everybody went and joined the health club. In a few months, you'll be canceling your memberships. What I'm saying is, if people can go on a program because they have mismanaged their lives to grossly accumulate flesh, what would it look like if your spiritual life's accumulations were put on display? Why does God give you the things that He gives you? So if the last time you moved, you found things that you haven't used in 10 years, the question is not, do you really need them? That is not the, that's the question everybody asks, right? In fact, we get storage units to store all of our scuvalum. <laughs> but that's not the right question to ask. The question is, having obtained this, why did I not find someone who needed it? It reveals a life of gross mismanagement in our accumulation. It reveals a life that is not really dead, depending on the Lord for everything, but a life that is busy accumulating and we accumulate so much that we forgot we even had it because we never planned to let anyone else benefit from it. It's it's heart-wrenching. I quit taking up clothes for Mexico 10 years ago. For a bunch of reasons. I've been all over Mexico and only once have I ever found a naked person. He was a man that could be on the biggest loser running down the street. He had been robbed. You remember that? He had been robbed. He was naked running down the main boulevard. And uh, I decided not to carry around everybody's accumulated leftover trashy clothes so that they could feel better about their materialistic lifestyle in the hope that I could find enough people to give those clothes to in Mexico. I decided not to do it. And I found out that if I invite you to clean your closets, I can fill this room, which only embarrassed me about our closets. What is your life about? When we consider Jacob and Laban, Laban gets his up front. Jacob was willing to suffer now for a benefit later. When we consider the widow of Zarephath, She is trusting God now, considering herself dead already, so she truly finds life. Turn with me to Daniel, the first chapter. You can encourage your pastor. Thank you, angel. God bless you. We're going to get to red letters in a minute, honey. We're going to get there. There is no better feeling in the world. And then seeing a family who doesn't have a way to get to work or their kids to school drive for the first time. There is not a better feeling in all of the world than seeing somebody who has labored and blessed God with the 300 square feet they have get 1,200 square feet in a bedroom for every two kids. I mean, it is amazing to see men in India who have lived on $50 a month be given 3,000 And they immediately turn it around and go find 600 men that they can help and teach about the love of Christ. 
You have no idea the blessing that is ours in Christ when we stop accumulating and we start distributing. You have no idea the blessing that is ours in Christ. You might say that you take hold of life that is truly life. Daniel, the first chapter. Let's pick up in the eighth verse. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. By the way, I found a poster the other day that said all the things that pig is in. Number one was fairly obvious. Pig is in pig. It's in pork. I'm very thankful for the journey into the blatantly well-known. From there, it went into somewhat of a descending list of lesser known items like Cheetos. Okay, well, I could kind of see that. Maybe there's lard in Cheetos. Crest toothpaste. Take that, Islam. (laughs) Anybody had uh, Welch's grape jelly? It's got pig in it. Marshmallows. Marshmallows have pig in them. Yeah. There are about 20 products you might not guess have pig in them that I eat every time I study the Koran. (laughs) Verse 9. Now God has caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord the King who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The King would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they look healthier. Say healthier. And better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. You know, I read this and the way that I would usually teach this is, man, um, what a miracle has happened here. They ate the food of paupers instead of the food of kings. And they they were extraordinarily blessed. It occurred to me something this morning, though. It is true that they ate the food of paupers instead of kings and they were blessed, that God came through for them, right? What was the goal? That they look healthy and well-nourished, right? That, that at the end of the 10 days, that's what needs to happen. What would have happened if they ate the food of the kings? They would have been healthy and well-nourished. Lord, what's going on? Apparently, Daniel teaches us that how you get to the goal is just as important as getting to the goal. See, in our life of instant gratification and our no-loss gospel, we say as long as we look healthy and well-nourished, I mean, it's all good, right? Not if God told you to eat vegetables and you're feasting on beef. See, it's very often, let's just say on a Facebook status, that you may look well-nourished spiritually, but really the question is, how did you Get there. Anybody ever ate a Snickers bar and felt energy immediately? 
Man, I have repeated that many times in my life. I recently came into possession of a Snickers bar that weighed many pounds. I only had one. The problem is, what starts off as immediate energy becomes a tremendous crash. I don't know from personal experience. I don't yada, Brent, but I'm told that there are foods that you can eat that not only provide you with that nourishment and that energy, there is no crash afterwards. Church, could it be that many times what looks like health, wealth, and success is a temporary high that is going to crash in on people's heads because they did not do it God's way? Could we put on the screen Proverbs 16, 8? Stay where you're at. You can write it down. Proverbs 16, 8. Better a little with the righteous. Say that. Little with the righteous. Than much gain with injustice. It matters how you get there, church. It matters whether you built your 800-member youth group on an appeal to the flesh or an appeal to sacrifice. It matters what message people are responding to. It matters. Say, hey, I outsold everybody else in the agency. Well, how did you outsell everyone else in the agency? It matters. Our God is a God of integrity, a God of justice. He is never, ever mixed up in darkness. You know, the ends do not justify the means with Him. What we learn in the law is that our life could be defined by an instant gratification or it could be defined by suffering now in the hopes of eternal reward. A Laban spirit or a Jacob spirit. What we find out in the prophets is that men who are dead already have a chance to trust God and truly live or to protect their own lives and stay in the death they were always in. By the way, one looks like they have food and the other doesn't. It's a miracle how that widow is staying alive with such little food. It wouldn't be a miracle if she guarded and rationed and protected her food. The miracle was that God provided for her because she trusted Him. In the writings, we find out that how we get the result is as important as getting the result itself. Turn with me to the book of Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, the third chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Say there when you were there. In the third chapter, starting in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is... You can build all kinds of things, friends. You can build it in the name of Jesus. You can build it in the likeness of the reputation of Jesus But the reality is there is a foundation that is Jesus Christ. Whatever you're going to build with your life's work, whatever your family will be founded on, whatever your children will be founded on, whatever the ministry that overflows from you is, it has to have as its foundation the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
which is interesting because the ministry of Jesus Christ was completely defined by loss. He said things like, gouge out your eye. It would be better to lose your eye than to go into hell with your whole body. A life that is willing to lose an eye to gain the kingdom. That's Matthew 5.30. In Matthew 10.37, he speaks about, if you don't love me more than your mother and your father. We'll come back and read those in it. These are things that are defined by loss, not by gain. The apostles did not get rich and build bigger businesses in their lifetimes. They were not international figures who were jet-setting all over the planet in their lifetimes. They all experienced extraordinary loss for the greatness and excellency of the kingdom of God. They had a Jacob spirit. They believed that it was worth working, suffering loss yourself, laboring at every turn, to get the beautiful bride. They believed that. When we're looking at 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light, it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. There is a beautiful truth displayed in this. You are either going to have loss now or you are going to have loss later. But there is no such thing as a life without loss. So ask yourself clearly, would you rather sacrifice now for a better resurrection and a better eternity? Or would you rather have every good thing that you can find now for yourself and suffer for an eternity? Because there is no way to escape the divine equation. You either suffer loss now or you suffer loss later. This is an important message for our time because it's been removed from the gospel. It's probably best that we clarify something. We're a ministry who goes hard. One brother said, we go hard in the paint, y'all. And it's a basketball reference from South Louisiana. We believe in having blood in the offering. I am not speaking about loss for the sake of loss. Let me tell you what that would look like. You could walk up to a man. You could agitate him until he punched you in the face. Or you could be Peter and John who preached the gospel at the command of God until men punched them in the face. The result, like Daniel, is the same. Both groups were punched in the face. But one was punched in the face because they were a meddler. And the other experienced loss for the sake of Christ. I am not talking about doing it hard simply so you can say I did it the hard way. I'm talking about doing it the hard way because that's what Christ said. And you refuse to find an easier way. Obedience was everything. In 1 Peter 4, you write it down. You can read it later. Starting around verse 15, he says, if you suffer as a criminal, as a meddler, you get no reward. 
But if you suffer for the glory of Christ, his glory rests on your shoulders. This is why the apostles can leave after taking a beating and they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. They rejoiced in the fact that they lost for Christ. See, when you can be so closely identified with Christ that He's your foundation and you lose in the same way that He loses. Let's talk about some of the ways that He lost. Did He suffer in His body because of the kingdom? Yes. Did He suffer in His family because of the kingdom? You know, Mary thought he was crazy. Read the second chapter of Mark. His brothers and his mother, they went and set out to take hold of him thinking he was insane, crazy. Lost his mind is the actual word in the NIV. He suffered in his family. Did he suffer in anguish in prayer, losing sleep for the kingdom's sake? What have you lost for Christ? I want to go through a couple of these in Matthew as we work to a close. We're going to finish in Luke, by the way. Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 5. We can do these in a way that you can find them in your Bible quickly and will bless you. In Matthew 5, in chap- uh, chapter 5, in verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than to throw your whole body into hell. Are you willing to lose something to avoid sin? You know, I'm proud of some of you who do not have smartphones. You got rid of them because it was better to lose your phone than lose your soul. Oh, pride's a damnable thing. A man ought to know what he cannot do. I'm very proud of some of you who your conscience, your past, and your present behavior dictates. You cannot drink. You shouldn't. Just like some people shouldn't have a smartphone. I'm proud of the man that is willing to lose so that he might win. What an immature thing it is because you need to lose something to win to try to enforce your own experience on every other person. Can I say that we struggle with different things? Matthew knows what it's like to be handsome and have people gawk at him. I've never had that. He can grow an afro off of his face and shape that thing. Well, I have Chewbacca strapped to my chin. (laughs) We struggle with different things. Are you willing to lose something that you might not sin against your king? Or do you value something so much that it's okay to break your king's heart? How about Matthew 10? In Matthew 10, 37... If anyone, I'm sorry, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. I've noticed an amazing thing happens with people's parents, with people's children. You can look at somebody on the side of the road who says, you know, I'm not sure Jesus is Lord. And you go, he's damned. He's a sinner going to hell. Then it comes to your own family and you're like, you know, they're probably saved. They're good people. You know with certainty that that man you met five minutes ago is damned. 
But you don't know with certainty that the man that you've lived with all your life is going to the kingdom of God, but you're willing to bet on it because you can't deal with the idea that Jesus is worth the loss of your father. It's tough, buddy. It's tough. But I'm someone who knows what it is to lose family members over Christ. When you are no longer welcome at a family event because they don't like to be around you, you are a reminder that they're damned. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What have you lost to find Christ? You lost a job for him? You know, remember, not lost for the sake of loss. You can walk in, act like an idiot and lose your job and then tell everybody it's because you were a Christian. When in reality it's because you're an idiot. But the glory of God will rest on your shoulders if it's because you were obedient to the Lord. I have found out that in charismatic Christianity, a lot of people say their loss is because of the Lord and it's really because they just lost their mind. You know, they don't want to budget. They don't want to... They have a Laban spirit. Give me now, give me now, give me now. And if it comes crashing in on my head, I'm going to blame Jesus. I mean, give him all the glory. Loss that is because of Jesus is glorious and you can rejoice in it. Go with me to Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, a familiar scripture that I want to start a verse early. Let's go to 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. He, he had on his mind the things that men desire. Just like the Pharisees did. In Luke 16, just like the Christian Instagram video does. He had on his mind the things that men admire. And Jesus called it a stumbling block. Do you know why? Jesus was having to consider great loss and Peter was trying to insulate all of them from it. No way, Lord, never, never will this happen to you. We don't lose. I had some moments that we hung on walls back there. Rick and I prayed for a woman in Mexico, got out of a wheelchair. That was extraordinary. That one didn't make the wall. The trip before it, an 80-pound girl named Lupita that died of basically what doctors would call consumption. Her body wasted away out of malnourishment. She died. You suffered loss for the kingdom. Let me tell you why we hung one on the wall and we didn't hang the other. Everyone likes to talk about their successes. Do you love the Lord when you tried with all of your heart and it didn't work? Do you keep going because any loss you experience, He's so worth it. You're sure the problem's with you, but not with Him. What would make your wall? Your great accomplishments are His great grace. Isn't that worth asking? 
We're going to close in Luke 16. I love this church. I love it with all of my heart. In fact, I traveled to more than a few churches. Our uh, disciples have planted churches. Uh, My great friends on the mission field around the world are all responsible for churches. But I like this one the best. It is the best. It is the best. One of the reasons that I love this church, you want to be told the truth. You strive for the hard word. So hear me. I'm not talking about putting pebbles in your shoes and walking on your knees and being self-deprecating and saying it's the kingdom of God. I'm talking about never taking the easy way out when the Lord has told you to do the difficult. I'm talking about obedience that costs you something because obedience is never tested if it doesn't cost you something. None of us are some kind of Christian masochists that simply want to suffer. But in the name of Jesus, if you said you were going to build the house, whatever it costs you, build the house. Do you know why? Because Jesus Christ is defamed if you don't. Because you said in the name of Jesus, I'm going to build you a house. You follow what I'm getting at here? In Luke 16, we really come to the crux of the matter. 16 verse 9. How about this? This is one of the most unusual statements Jesus made. I tell you, use worldly wealth. Come on now. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into an eternal dwelling. Do without now, so that in eternity, you will have a beautiful dwelling, a better resurrection. In Hebrews 11, all of the faith hall of fame is based on one idea. They did not value the treasures of this world as much as they valued what would be given them in the kingdom to come if they placed higher priority on that. Now, we say all of the time, everything I own is the Lord's. Prove it. Test it. You know? I, I, I'm, the pocket knife story is not a joke for me. Uh, in my life, I've given away a few of them. It's the hardest thing to do. Uh, in Romania, there was... Yes. Who hopefully will not watch this. He's an engineer. Like, oh, you know, this is neat. It's, it's well constructed, you know. He has no idea what to do with it. None. But I told them that I'd taken one around the world. It saved my life in Honduras. Been a blessing in every way. And as a way to encourage them on missions, the first man that stepped up for missions, I had something special for them. I gave it to him. Now, it's special to me and not all that special to him. It's been harder for me to give away a tool that I love than to give away a car. It's strange what your heart gets attached to. 
and what begins to possess you rather than you possess it. You know, it might be a special 20 minutes of your day that it's just your time, right? It might be so many things. But the way that you define an idol is when you cannot do something that the Lord tells you to do. So put it to the test and see. I'm not trying to increase our offering, although that's never a bad thing. Our vision is big. I mean, it is really, really big. Trying to increase our obedience. Because I believe that if the church is properly obedient, offerings really will not be a problem. Use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. When's the last time you saw Christmas bonus as an evangelism tool? When's the last time you saw your raise as a chance to win souls? Let's be honest. We see it as a chance to go to a vacation. We see it as a chance to do a lot of things. But we don't view our worldly wealth as a means for eternal blessings. And we should. Everything that you have should belong to the Lord. I want to close with Luke 16. And I want to read to you starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Is that a yucky picture? The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. I don't even know that we need to get to the rest of that passage. I simply want to tell you that it is very revealing that Jesus picked a man who had every pleasure in his life and he put him in hell for eternity. And then he took a man who had no pleasures in his life and he put him in paradise for an eternity. Because it occurred to me the first time I heard this story in a new light. I was sitting in India uh, many years ago, more than nine trips now uh, to India. India has a caste system. And if you're at the top of the caste, you have the most in this world. For instance, a Brahmin is at the top of India's caste system. They often rule the political class. They live in the biggest houses. Their skin is the lightest. They wear the most jewelry. All of the things that Indian men grow up looking forward to. The lowest caste, incidentally, usually have a ring from their nose to their ear, something that we're imitating now. I have no idea why. And what it literally speaks of is among human beings, I'm the lowest and worth the least. If you're a Brahmin, you get paid more in your job, even if you're doing essentially the same work as one of the other caste. Heaven has a caste system. Caste system seems so unfair. You know, we have kind of a cash system. Whoever has the most cash is in the highest caste. We'll even vote for people for president because they have a boatload of cash. Heaven's caste system is exactly like the one on earth, except it's inverted. 
On earth, the rich man is at the top and the poor man is at the bottom. But in the kingdom of God, the rich are placed at the bottom and the poor at the top. You can have loss now and gain for eternity or you can gain the whole world now and lose your soul in eternity. We're going to stand to our feet. And as you do, ask yourself, the things that you possess, do they possess you or do you possess them? You can stand. I am a pastor who likes to preach against materialism. There's no doubt about it. I'm a pastor who likes to preach about sacrifice. It appeals to my heart. I also love themes of loyalty. But the reality is that the foundation of the kingdom is based on self-denial, not gain. And we live in such a saturation of bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me that we have forgotten that our lives are supposed to bless them. Psalm 67 begs the Lord to shine upon us, to bless us, that His ways may be known among the furthest nations. If the last time you moved your house, you had so much stuff that it was embarrassing, then consider something. You may have things that actually should belong to other people, and you've just been so concerned with yourself, you couldn't see it. Now, you could take the easy way. Y'all could go home right now, clean out the clothes you don't want, and drop them off at the Goodwill, pat yourself on the back and say, I did a good thing. That's loss for the sake of loss. We're looking for loss for the sake of Christ. What if you got on your face before the living God and said, Lord, I've said all my life that you own everything. But I never considered that you wanted any of it. What do I have now that you are asking for because you are my Lord and I would rather cut off my hand than miss your will for eternity? Oh, that would be a challenge for 2016. It'd be better than whatever resolution you made. Better than whatever you hope to do to your outer man. How about we get the inner man right? This year, I want to be alone as the biggest loser. I want to outgive you all. I want to finish the year with nothing except what Christ has given me.